Thank you all for coming back after dinner. Thank you, uh, Andrew, for that introduction. I have to say, of all the introductions I've ever received, that was the most recent. <laughs> Sorry, it's... All right, um, so uh, if you were with us earlier uh, uh, today, uh, the four o'clock lecture, I um, spoke a little bit about natural law theory, how to think about the natural law in relation to other ethical traditions, um, utilitarianism, Kantianism, um, uh, Habesian, Humean, uh, instrumental rationality, et cetera, et cetera. It was dry, it was academic, it was boring. Tonight will be unlike that. It'll be exciting and sexy because we're gonna talk about like church and state, morality and politics. Um, and then tomorrow morning, if you come back at 10 a.m., uh, we're gonna, the, the title of that lecture is um, uh, something along the lines of thinking about four creational truths that matter most. And so that's really gonna look at, um, uh, just as a preview, um, being made in the image and likeness of God, being created male and female, male and female being created for each other, and humanity being created for God, and how those four truths uh, are really essential uh, for a flourishing um, society, and that you know, when we ignore them, uh, we do so at our own peril. Uh, but so for tonight, what I want to do, two major, major sections to this lecture. One, thinking about um, church and state and morality and law uh, from the perspective of an American. You know, so thinking you know, primarily like as a citizen, political um, thinking, constitutional thinking, that sort of a thing. And then second, thinking about it as a Christian. Um, so one, constitutionally, how should we think about the relationship of church and state, morality and law? Um, and then secondly, thinking about um, our kind of theological vocation. So one, a citizenship question, one, a vocational question of uh, how do church and state relate and um, how do morality and law relate. And unfortunately, I'm gonna use um, two Catholics as my foils uh, because I think they get this wrong. Um, they both happen to have the last name of Kennedy. Um, so I'm gonna start with JFK and then eventually I'm gonna end up with uh, Anthony Kennedy. Um, and so, you know, learn from the mistakes of um, uh, bad Catholics. Um, <laughs> learn from the truths of good Catholics. <laughs> the other part of the lecture. All right, so um, first part of the lecture, um, you could think of this subtitle as what the separation of church and state doesn't mean. Uh, lessons from John Fitzgerald Kennedy's um, his address that he gave September 12th, 1960 to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association. And so just to set the table, this was, um, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was the second Catholic to be nominated um, uh, to run on the major platform uh, for president. He's the first Catholic to be uh, elected president. So Al Smith was the first Catholic uh, who was nominated. That's why you have the annual Al Smith dinner in New York City. Um, JFK is the first Catholic president. And so he goes to Houston He's speaking before the Baptist Ministerial Association, and he needs to persuade them that it's safe to vote for a papist to be president. Um, he does so in a terrible way, because what he ends up doing is distorting both our constitutional order, an understanding of our constitutional order, and the role of religion in politics. Uh, and so that's why I say we want to learn from his mistakes. This is, uh, I want to read you just two paragraphs from that address and then unpack uh, the various mistakes and go from there. Kennedy uh, says, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or school is granted any public funds or political preference, where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, 
where no public official either requests or accepts instruction on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair. Okay, end quote. Um, he got two things right in that quote. So let me start by, you know, praising what's good. Uh, he says that, one, he believes uh, in an America, quote, where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president. Um, that's true, and you could extend this by saying, you know, no judge is denied confirmation in the Senate because his or her religion differs from, you know, fill in the blank, you know, senator who made anti-Catholic comments during the past four years of confirmation hearings, right? And we, we saw this type of anti-religious bigotry where, you know, someone was a member of the Knights of Columbus and all of a sudden that was supposed to be disqualifying from a, uh, 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 an appointment to a federal judgeship. And this is how Amy Coney Barrett, who otherwise had been a relatively unknown law professor at Notre Dame during her confirmation hearing for the Seventh Circuit judgeship that she was nominated for, because of all of the line of questioning she got that was you know, just very thinly veiled anti-Catholicism, the phrase, the dogma lives loudly, became a rallying cry, uh, and she became the glorious ACB. That's how she then became the nominee for uh, the Supreme Court, and God willing, three months from now, she'll be the author of the majority opinion overturning Roe, right? Um, God willing, we should be praying for that. It's not a done deal, right? This is something we need to um, continue pushing for. But anyway, so he gets that right, that we don't want to have religious tests for office. Um, and then the second thing that he gets right, he says, where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Um, this has also been something that, you know, especially as a Catholic, the contraception mandate during the previous, uh, twice now previous uh, presidential administration, so not the Trump administration, uh, the Obama administration, that was largely targeted uh, at Catholics, and it was good that others who disagreed with Catholic teaching on contraception said it's unjust to force the little sisters of the poor to violate their religious beliefs, even if I don't agree with their religious beliefs, right? That we understood that a uh, violation of religious liberty against one church was so indivisible that it was against all of them. Right. That was a helpful uh, moment of unity from across um, religious divide where people who didn't necessarily agree with the Little Sisters or, for that matter, with the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby. Right? There, there were you know, various religious groups who said, look, I'm not even pro-life, but you shouldn't be forcing pro-life evangelicals, uh, pro-life Catholics to violate their beliefs. All right. So he got those two things right. I think he got more or less everything else wrong. Uh, and, and I want to say why. I want to highlight a couple of things and highlight how this purely from an American perspective, purely from a political, philosophical, constitutional uh, perspective, this goes wrong. So first he says, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act. And then he extends that to say, and no Protestant minister would do the same. And we should ask, why? Why should all citizens, uh, including everyone in this room, be able to tell the president how to act. Many of us do it on an hourly basis with these devices in our pockets. We tweet saying how, why should it be that if you're a member of the ordained clergy, you somehow lose your full political citizenship to be able to tell elected officials how they ought to act? You know, what is it from a constant, you might think that it's imprudent from a theological, pastoral perspective for clergymen to be doing this. I don't necessarily think that's true, but you could think that. But from a civil perspective, constitutional perspective, 
wouldn't it just be unjust to say every citizen can petition their governors, can petition their political leaders, can tell political leaders how to act except for religious citizens or except for the ordained, except for the clergy? Right? Why the double standard? Why relegate uh, members of the ordained clergy to a second-class citizenship simply based upon their ordination? And then he says, where no church school is granted any public funds, why? Why should we have public funds go to non-religious schools, but then say if you're religious, you can't receive public funds? What that looks like is a violation of equality. Uh, furthermore, it looks like a violation of free exercise of religion. To say that there are certain public benefits that are available, vouchers, other school choice programs, except if you want to go to a Catholic school or a Baptist school. Right? I went to a Quaker school. Right? I don't even know what we, I won't go down that road. But, um, <laughs> and they've disowned me anyway, so it's, it's, it's okay. Um, but you could say that what Kennedy's buying into is a double standard in which you have full access to public funding unless you're religious, unless your school is religious. So the government runs schools that we call public they get government funding. Secular schools can participate in voucher programs, education savings accounts, other forms of public funding. But if you're a church school, somehow you're supposed to uh, forego that. What would be the Constitution? What would be the justice defense of that? He continues, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source. And again, the question is why? What justifies that? If you're a public official, you could be requesting uh, and accepting instruction on public policy from the ACLU or from the Heritage Foundation. You could be accepting it from an environmentalist group or from a big oil drilling company. Why could you request assistance and advice on public policy from various think tanks, from various lobbying groups, except for the religious ones? Why is it that everyone has a seat at the table when it comes to lobbying government, when it comes to advising government, except if you're coming at it from a theological perspective? Right? Kennedy can't answer that question. Right? He can't justify that. When I worked at the Heritage Foundation, Andrew and I worked there together, we would get requests on a weekly basis from members of Congress saying, can you come brief me and my staff on how best to understand this religious liberty issue or this issue about marriage? Andrew, after he left Heritage, he went to the ERLC, right? He worked for the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, where he did the same thing, right? So when Kennedy here says, uh, doesn't request or accept instruction from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, the NCC was kind of like the Protestant version of the US Conference of Catholic Bishops. It, it's, it was now it's the more liberal, progressive, mainline version of the ERLC. What principle of constitutionalism of justice would say every interest group can provide instruction, can be requested to uh, lobby, except for the religious groups. Right? Kennedy can't answer that. Next, he says, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its official. Why can't the church discipline her members, including her members who hold public office, if they go against church teaching? Right? That's both directly and indirectly influencing the general populace and the public acts of officials. If you are a public official and you are a member of a church, it's the duty of that church 
to discipline you if you deserve to be disciplined. So why is Kennedy saying the church doesn't have that freedom? And then lastly, he says, I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair. Had he said personal, I might have been able to give him half credit for that. Our religious views should be personal, but they should never be private. Because religious claims are truth claims, and truth claims are public claims. Right? Religious claims are, claim, are they're public truth claims about the nature of reality. And so why is it that you would, why would anyone want, from again, a purely an American perspective, to have a president whose deepest convictions about reality have no bearing on how he or she exercises his or her office. Right? Why would you want that? You want someone who's going to be kind of um, schizophrenic, and these are my deepest beliefs about the nature of reality and morality, but I'm not going to let them influence how I conduct public policy. Right? Again, like the entire vision of the framers was that the people who exercise public authority would be drawing from their deepest convictions, their deepest moral convictions, their deepest philosophical and theological convictions. What ends up happening when you, you know, read the, the speech to the um, Houston uh, Baptist Ministerial Association is Kennedy really wants to create the naked public square, uh, the phrase that Father Richard John Newhouse used to describe what was happening throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, in American public life, both the theorists, people like John Rawls, uh, theory of public reason, um, but also what was just happening on the ground. Don't impose your religion on me. Don't uh, legislate your morality on me. But even more importantly, what he was doing was he was denying the freedom of the church. And by the church, I don't just mean the clergy. I mean everyone in this auditorium. He was denying our freedom to be fully engaged citizens, to be petitioning the government, to be lobbying the government, to be instructing the government, to be uh, disciplining members of the government if they were under our authority as church leaders. That's our freedom. First Amendment protected freedom, free exercise of religion to be fully engaged as citizens, including drawing from our deepest wells of knowledge of truth being our religious convictions. Right? So what I want to say about this then is that the institutional separation of church and state, right, having separate institutions, ecclesial and political, does not mean the separation of religion and politics, nor does it mean the separation of morality and law. So having different jurisdictions and different institutions for the church in the state does not mean religion shouldn't influence politics, nor does it mean that morality shouldn't influence law. Um, you know, what Kennedy was buying into there and then what various um, theorists of the latter half of the 20th century explicitly advocated for was bastardizing separation of church and state into privatization of religion and separation of morality from law. Our deepest beliefs about God and about man and about the nature of reality will influence our beliefs about morality, and our beliefs about morality will in turn influence our beliefs about law. That's inevitable. There's no escaping it. Like what you believe about God and about reality will influence what you believe about right and wrong, good and evil, will influence what you believe about the law. It's inescapable. What I'm arguing tonight is that it should be deliberate. It should be intentional. We should be deliberate and intentional about it. Our metaphysical beliefs influence our moral beliefs, which influence our political and legal beliefs. And that's true for everyone. 
right? Not just for Christians, not just for Southern Baptists, not just for Catholics. Everyone has certain metaphysical commitments which influence their moral commitments, which influence their political commitments. Now, it would be awfully odd, and I'll argue it would be unjust to say that all non-religious metaphysical beliefs and moral beliefs have a seat at the political table, but none of the religious metaphysical beliefs and moral beliefs have a seat at that table. And that's the essence of what JFK and then others, um, in, you know, in essence, were arguing. Right? The, the, the type of Rawlsian public reason that wants to create a subsection of reason. Right? So rather than just saying all reasons are eligible, public reason was trying to create some fragment of rationality that would be publicly uh, uh, um, uh, um, um, allowed in the public square, whereas other reasons uh, would have to be left behind. What I'm arguing is that all reasons should be at the table. And that would include what I mentioned uh, this afternoon, natural law reasons, but also supernatural law reasons, revealed reasons, both theological and philosophical. Um, these are schools of rationality, what uh, Alistair McIntyre refers to as traditions of rationality. And look, there are Kantians, there are utilitarians, there are Humeans. They all have a seat at the table, so why shouldn't natural law theorists and divine command theorists and virtue ethicists. They should also be at the table, right? I actually think the latter three groups got it much more uh, correct than the former three. And so why would we wanna say from a political constitutional perspective that the Kantians, the hedonists, the utilitarians, the Humeans, they all can argue from their deepest metaphysical and moral convictions when they're engaging in the democratic process but Orthodox Jews and Roman Catholics and Evangelicals and Latter-day Saints, you have to somehow bifurcate. You have to censor yourselves. You have to somehow translate. You have to come up with an alternative set of reasons that influence what you think about law and public policy. I want to argue, one, there's no justification for that. Right? The, the JFK never offered a justification. But even more importantly is that it's bad for our, uh, our Republican form of government that our, this system of self-government will only work if we allow all citizens to speak and to reason and to think from their deepest convictions about the true, the good, and the beautiful, and then we decide what we actually think is true, good, and beautiful based upon that exchange of arguments and ideas and our own evaluation where we draw from those deepest convictions. Right? And this isn't at odds with the liberative democracy. This isn't at odds with ordered liberty. This is actually the very heart of it. This is what the liberative democracy and ordered liberty entails. It entails allowing all of the citizens to think about this. And yet, consider my next Kennedy, um, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, uh, who famously wrote uh, in an opinion upholding Roe v. Wade that, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Uh, this is the passage that Justice Antonin Scalia would always ridicule as the sweet mystery of life uh, passage. So Kennedy thinks the heart of liberty is the right to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. That's not the historic understanding. Right? The historic understanding was that God defined existence and meaning as he created the universe and human life, and that the heart of liberty, as distinguished from license, was to order one's own actions in accordance with God's reasons. 
And this historic understanding wasn't foreign to the American political tradition. You know, as I quoted um, in this afternoon's lecture, Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from the Birmingham jail would cite both Augustine and Aquinas to explain that an unjust law was no law at all and that man-made laws that didn't square, that weren't derived from the natural law and the eternal law were unjust laws. That human reason goes well when it participates in God's reason. And so that's how we define existence, the universe, meaning, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, ordered liberty requires truth. And arriving at truth means we have to make distinctions between good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. And that means we need to make appeals to deeper moral considerations and metaphysical considerations. And I see no reason to exclude certain citizens, certain organizations, certain traditions of rationality. Um, particularly ones that are true, right? Um, so to, to summarize this first part of the talk, um, the, the American institutional separation of church and state should be interpreted um, not as a prohibition on robust political debate, not as a separation of religion from politics, not as a separation of morality from law, uh, what it should be interpreted is that there are separate jurisdictions with separate authority structures, that having authority in the church just as such doesn't give you authority over the state. So like being a pastor, being a bishop just as such doesn't make you a governor or the president, and vice versa. Having political authority just as such doesn't give you ecclesial authority, authority over the church. That's the separation that the founders uh, established, not a separation of politics um, uh, from um, of religion from politics or morality from law. And the last thing I'll add in this summary is that, and you don't see it on the left. You don't see it from secularists. They reason from their deepest convictions about the nature of reality, right? Caitlyn Jenner is a woman. That's their metaphysics. That's their ontology. They have a certain understanding of the nature of reality. It is unjust. It's a violation of human rights for you not to allow Leah Thomas to swim in the girl's championship swim races, right? So they're drawing from their deepest convictions about ontology and metaphysics, about morality to then influence law and public policy. And so I see no reason why uh, people with postmodern metaphysics and, you know, I, I'm not gonna uh, uh, characterize, you know, Gnostic kind of convictions, I, I will characterize, right? Um, I was originally gonna go in a different direction with that and I stopped myself. There's no reason why those citizens should be able to fully engage, and then Christians, Jews, uh, et cetera, et cetera, should not. Um, and that's just speaking from an American perspective, just speaking about what equality, justice, um, uh, uh, constitutional provisions require. Okay, let me now pivot and in the uh, second half of the lecture, talk about how we should think about this from a Christian perspective. What is our vocation as uh, citizens to look like? Right? Because citizenship is not just a constitutional question, it's also a vocational question. What does Jesus want from us as members of a self-governing republic? Right? How does he want us to exercise stewardship of our vote, of our political participation, and whether that participation is you know, donating money to politicians or volunteering on campaigns or writing op-eds and um, letters to the editor or doing whatever, right? What, what, what do we think from a uh, um, Christian perspective? And so that last sentence that I read from you from JFK's address, he says, I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair. False. 
That is not what Jesus is asking of you. The vocation of the Christian citizen is to transform all temporal realities with the truth of the gospel in keeping with the proper nature and purpose of any given temporal institution, right? Being an economic institution, a cultural institution, or a political institution. Um, so that, that's to say is that like, if you're a Christian businessman, the way you run your business should look different than if you were a secular atheist businessman. If you're a Christian artist, it should look different than if you were a hedonistic artist. If you're a, um, uh, um, a, a Christian school, it should look different than if you're the uh, uh, utilitarian school. Right? What Jesus wants is that whatever institution we're exercising stewardship over, it should be transformed in light of the gospel in keeping with its distinctive uh, purpose. Right? And so we shouldn't turn businesses into churches. We shouldn't turn um, schools into churches. We shouldn't turn um, uh, uh, art studios into churches. Right? I mean, there's a certain purpose, integrity, mission of different institutions, but they should all be enlivened, leavened with the gospel. And so while, um, you know, from a certain uh, Christian perspective, there is a proper institutional autonomy of the political order, right? So the separation of church and state is not just an American constitutional provision. There's also a theological justification for thinking there's an institutional autonomy of the political order from the ecclesiastical order. That institutional autonomy is not an autonomy from God or an autonomy from morality or an autonomy from the truth, right? So it's one thing to say the state is autonomous from the church. It's another thing, and it's a mistaken thing to say the state is autonomous from God where the state is autonomous from morality. The state is autonomous from truth, beauty, and goodness. And it's the role of people like us. Um, I'm Catholic, so an archer should be the laity, right? It's the role of the laity, uh, not the bishops and the priests. It's the role of the laity to transform directly political institutions. It's our role as, uh, as voters, as politicians, as office holders to tr- directly influence politics. And then it's the role of ordained clergy, um, the hierarchical church to teach, to govern, and to sanctify. Uh, And that teach, govern, and sanctify includes disciplining members of the church who hold political office should they use their political office in sinful ways. Uh, And the best example of this from my own tradition involves um, Archbishop Rummel, uh, the Archbishop of um, New Orleans. Back in the 1960s, there were three Catholics. They were segregationists, and the archbishop excommunicated them because they would not repent of their racism. And they held public office, and they were using their public office to promote a grave evil, the evil of racism, the evil of, and this is like literal segregation. Two of them ended up repenting, were restored uh, with the body of Christ, one did not. But the purpose here is that the church has a duty, right? It's not optional. Right? If you're in church leadership, just because someone is exercising an office in the political order doesn't thereby free them up from your jurisdiction as a church leader to discipline them when they stray. Right? And so for the members of the uh, ordained clergy, they're going to have that direct role of disciplining members, and not just political members. Right? Anyone uh, who publicly and gravely sins uh, should be called to a, a account by church leadership. Um, They need to teach the truth about morality as it uh, touches politics. Uh, And they need to then equip the saints to transform 
temporal realities. This is an essential part of the freedom of the church uh, to engage in the church's mission, which is to transform all of creation, including political realities. And it's really the freedom of the church to be able to publicly engage, right? So the problem I have with the JFK line of thinking is that it's limiting the freedom of the church. And the reason why it matters is that part of our vocation uh, isn't just to kind of like be privately holy, it's to be publicly transforming all of creation. All right, so let me say a little bit more about this and then um, we'll get to questions and answer. First thing I wanna say is that this is not, uh, from a Christian perspective, um, a threat to um, uh, meaningful, authentic liberties and freedoms. And in fact, this is the best long-term defense of meaningful and authentic liberties and freedoms. Only if you have your laws and your polity based on a firm foundation of the truth will you have civil rights, human rights, and other important liberties protected in the long haul. Um, so let me read you a quote. Uh, this is from John Paul II, his um, uh, teaching document, Centissimus Annus. He says, freedom attains its full development only by accepting the truth. In a world without truth, freedom loses its foundation and man is exposed to the violence of passion and to manipulation, both open and hidden. And the idea is that if there's no such thing as truth, and the truth is what's providing the foundation for our rights and our freedoms, all that's left is power. Right? And so if you were here in the earlier session, someone had asked about, you know, what do you do when Amazon cancels your book? You can't argue with them, persuade, because it's all about power at that point. Right? And this is what John Paul is getting at when he says, you know, you're left to the violence of passion and manipulation, both open and hidden, the hidden manipulation, the hidden passion. Um, if you can't appeal to some objective standard of right and wrong, good and bad, what is left? Right? That's uh, his radical critique of a certain form of democracy that wants to leave it all up to majority rule, where majority rule determines the truth. Right? And that's radically different than majority rule trying to, dis to decipher the truth, that we discern what the truth is and then we vote based upon our knowledge of the truth. And so the truth about human dignity, about the human person, about human flourishing, about the political common good, that's the best foundation and defense of human rights and civil liberties. And any of the defenses that you see where people are like, oh, moral relativism or skepticism or neutrality, that's not gonna be a defense for meaningful freedoms and liberties and rights, right? I mean, tr try making an argument based upon moral skepticism for why segregation is wrong. Try making an argument based upon moral relativism for why segregation is wrong. If you wanna be an anti-racist, you're gonna be talking about truth claims. Right? And so there's no escaping this one way or the other. All right, second uh, thing that I wanna say about this. Um, political freedom and institutional autonomy does not require or support relativism. Right? So this follows from that very last thing I was saying. And I, I wanna read you a, a long quote here um, but it's important because it'll highlight um, uh, uh, sev several kind of takeaway points uh, about what the legitimate freedom in a democracy, in a self-governing republic like ours, what institutional autonomy does not or should not uh, require. And it's from Cardinal Ratzinger. So um, now he's Pope Emeritus Benedict. Before he, was po before he was Pope Emeritus, before he was Pope, he was Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, and this is what he wrote. He says, 
Relativism, of course, has nothing to do with the legitimate freedom of Catholic citizens to choose among the various political opinions that are compatible with faith and the moral law and to select according to their own criterion which best corresponds to the needs of the common good. Political freedom is not and cannot be based upon the relativistic idea that all conceptions of the human person's good have the same value and truth, but rather on the fact that politics are concerned with very concrete realizations of the true human and social good in given historical, geographic, economic, technological, and cultural contexts. He then says that you know, it's not the church's role uh, to point out what the best technical or cultural or economic answer is uh, when there are multiple paths for it. But then he says, it is, however, the church's right and duty to provide a moral judgment on temporal matters when this is required by faith and the moral law. If Christians must recognize the legitimacy of differing points of view about the organization of worldly affairs, they are also called to reject as injurious to democratic life, a conception of pluralism which reflects moral relativism. Okay, what is he saying there? He's saying that the type of pluralism, the type of uh, political freedom that we're talking about is which means are the best way of arriving at authentic ends. He's not saying that democracy or a Republican form of self-government requires that all conceptions of the human good are equal. He says this, that's the relativistic idea that all conceptions of the human good have the same value or the same truth. What he's saying instead is that we should actually recognize what are the authentic goods uh, that perfect us. You know, goods about our religious nature, about our conjugal nature, about our rational nature, about our social nature, and then say given different historical, geographic, economic, technological, and cultural contexts, what's the best way of getting there? Right? And so you could say, all right, we have a responsibility to steward the earth, what's the best way of getting there? Is it a carbon tax? Is it cap and trade? Is it curbside recycling? Is it recycling centers? Whatever, right? Likewise, you could say we have a responsibility um, to discover a cure for cancer. Experimenting on unborn babies isn't one of the acceptable ways to go about discovering a cure for cancer, right? So what he's saying is that you're not, you can debate about the legitimate means to the ends, curbside recycling, recycling centers, cap and trade, whatever. I mean, you can, we can debate what's the best way of caring for the environment. We can debate what's the best way of curing cancer. We should immediately exclude anything that is objectively immoral. And that's what he says it is, he said it's both the right and the duty of the church to call out as um, injurious a democratic life um, a conception of pluralism that reflects moral relativism, and the church has to speak out when doing so is required by the moral law. Right? The church has to speak out to condemn segregation. It has to speak out to condemn embryo experimentation. It has to speak out uh, to condemn uh, uh, pediatric gender transition. And that's not a form of, well, you're imposing, actually this leads to the third quote, and this isn't a form of theocracy, right? So the third thing I, I wanna point out um, is that all of those ends that I just mentioned, racial equality, um, uh, now I forget the three that I mentioned, uh, 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 racial equality, uh, human equality amongst the embryonic human and the uh, collegiate human, and then um, the bodily integrity of our created nature as male and female, those aren't just revealed truths. Those are all truths of human nature. Uh, and so 
Um, this doesn't require the church um, to, in some uh, um, illegitimate way, uh, impose its beliefs on non-Christians. Right? It's not forcing people to be baptized. It's not forcing people, let's say, you know, if I, if I was uh, president, forcing you all to give up meat on Fridays during Lent. Right? It's not. These aren't part of the divine law, part of the revealed supernatural law. These are all part of the natural law. Okay, and so this is what um, Ratzinger writes. He says, no Catholic can appeal to the principle of pluralism or the autonomy of lay involvement in political life to support policies affecting the common good which compromise or undermine fundamental ethical requirements. This is not a question of confessional values per se because such ethical precepts are rooted in human nature itself and belong to the natural moral law. They do not require from those who defend them the profession of the Christian faith, although the church's teaching confirms and defends them always and everywhere as part of her service to the truth about man and about the common good of society. So what he's saying there is that the truths that we're talking about as being essential for uh, political common good, human flourishing, are truths of human nature, they're knowable by human reason, and the church bears witness to them because Jesus has revealed them in the scriptures. And so it's not as if this is some form of, uh, you know, he says confessionalism, uh, confessional values per se. It's not as if this is a debate between infant baptism versus believer's baptism. It's not a debate. I mean, we could probably have debates about that uh, later tonight, perhaps over drinks, so maybe we'll have to have a debate about whether it should be over drinks. You can see what I'm getting at, right? That's not what he's getting at, right? Because what you hear from the left is anytime you say the law should reflect morality, Ross Douthat wrote a great essay for First Things about 15 years ago titled Theocracy, 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 right? When George W. Bush said, we're not going to use public funds to destroy human embryos. Don't impose your religion on me. Don't impose your morality on me. Uh, what Ratzinger is pointing out is that we have to do that. It's the only way to protect authentic human dignity authentic human freedom and basic human rights. Okay, um, let me look at the time real quick. All right, let me, um, all right, let me say uh, uh, one last thing and then we'll have time uh, for questions. I think this ultimately is gonna come in two different ways uh, for Christians in the public square. One, there are certain things that are fundamentally contrary uh, to the natural moral law, fundamentally undermine and harm uh, human nature. And you can think of these things as um, uh, actions that are intrinsically evil, always and everywhere evil. Things like intentional killing of the innocent, right? And so whether that's um, terror bombing, whether that's intentionally targeting civilian populations during war, or whether that's abortion and euthanasia uh, and embryo destructive uh, biomedical research, whether it's the redefinition of marriage, whether it's transitioning uh, children whether it's violating religious liberty, uh, whether it's violating parental rights, um, racism, exploitation of workers, exploitation of migrants, all of those things are kind of bright red lines. They're never justified. And so they could never be part of a political program or platform that is itself just. Uh, and so Christians will have the duty to oppose all of those things. All right, then there's gonna be a variety of ways in which Christians promote the common good. What should our trade policies be? What should our tax policies be? What should our environmental policies be? And there's not one unique answer. This is what Ratzinger is getting at. There's you know, a variety of 
technical, economic, cultural um, factors that we're going to have to debate, we're going to have to discuss. While I think we all should be of the same mind when it comes to uh, abortion, marriage, gender identity, religious liberty, racism, um, uh, intentional targeting of non-combatants, exploitation of workers and migrants, I don't think um, just based on our common theology, we can be of one mind when it comes to taxation and trade and environmental policy and curbside recycling. Right? We need to go more. Right? We need to know more. We would have to have discussions about supply and demand curves and about cost-benefit analysis. We would have to appeal to other disciplines. And then we, I mean, ideally we would all see eye to eye because I, you know, we would all eventually come to what the truth of the matter is. But just based on our theological convictions, just based on um, what's been revealed to us, that alone doesn't get us there. Right? And there's going to be, therefore, legitimate freedom amongst uh, members of the church to debate these things based upon what you think the best evidence is about uh, creation care. Right? What should we do? Is, is global climate change actually happening, yes or no? If it is happening, how big of a problem is it, you know, severe or not severe? If it is severe, what are the different mitigation uh, uh, approaches? What's the cost benefit of different mitigation, right? All of those things we're going to have to debate and discuss on the merits, right? That's what Ratzinger is getting at. That's what I'm getting at where we say that's the legitimate political freedom of the Christian in the public square. It's not a form of legitimate political freedom to say I'm in favor of redefining marriage or I'm in favor of allowing males who identify as female to compete against females or allowing uh, doctors to mutilate the bodies of children uh, because they're confused about who they are. Right? That's not a form of legitimate pluralism, right? Because there, there is a healthy form of pluralism. There's a variety of ways. There's a plural form of human flourishing, lots of different ways in which we can flourish, and the law should respect that healthy pluralism. But there's also abuses of liberty, right? So you can think of this as the blessings of liberty and the abuses of liberty. And if you can't make that distinction, right, you're not actually going to be able to live out your Christian vocation in the public realm, in the political realm.